Um, all right, we'll move to the message. And um, a sermon is, again, what we kind of saw in that quote. We're gathering, and, and part of the reason why we're gathering is to hear from God's word and then hear it explained. Uh, and the goal of a sermon is to proclaim the news. It's also to make it cl- plain and clear and understandable. We're looking at God's word. Again, all week, we're encountered with content and our own thinking. And all of that is vying for authority in our lives and trying to say, this is what true life is. This is where it's meant to be found. So it's so nice to break up our hearts on a Sunday by gathering and sitting under God's word and allowing it to speak to us and ultimately to point us to Jesus, the one who, again, isn't the man in the mirror, but is a savior who we need to learn about. And so that's the goal there with a sermon. That's why we do these every week, that we need to hear this good news over and over Again, and so this week, I want to start by talking about uh, house projects. We are currently in the midst of doing a lot of house projects. This one is plumbing, and I was realizing something. I have a few that have have been wild, so I've learned some things. Uh, One was when I was doing electrical on lights, and you get those little caps that unite the wires, and I was pushing it on, and it kept falling off. And I'm like, I don't understand what is happening. I don't get it. And then I just, for some reason, if you know electrical at all, you're like, yeah, I started twisting it a little bit and it like started screwing in. I was like, who knew? I didn't know. Uh, So that was great. Another one, I was doing an outlet, a switch plate cover replacement and Allison was watching me and I was very frustrated for many, many minutes. And then she was like, I think this wire goes on that thing and this wire goes on that thing. And I was like, oh, but the worst one was this one. I was plumbing and I'm trying to put on a new handle for our toilet and I'm cranking it. And I mean, it's like 15 minutes in. Thankfully, our kids were napping so they didn't get to see me in my frustrated glory. But I literally at one point look up to the sky and I go, it doesn't make sense. And then I looked back at the packaging and it said, likely there will be a reverse thread, which means instead of lefty, Lucy, righty, tidy, it's the opposite. So it's literally the way your brain works, it's counterintuitive. And then I do that, I'm like, oh. And so that's I, what I learned is, I'm the problem. I, it's always me. I need to figure out what is it that I'm not getting. Um, but, but also, I'm, I tend to miss the point. And that's actually what our passage is about. So again, we're looking at it, as Emily read, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a story that comes to us in Luke 16, at Luke's gospel in the New Testament. And just for a little context, last week Ben spoke on what comes before this in Luke, which is being a wise steward of God's resources, understanding who God is, how he operates, and what it looks like to then uh, honor him with even the the resources that he gives us. Um, But we also see in this context, leading into our passage and what Emily just read, uh, a big shift. And it says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Particularly, they were sneering at his teaching on money. And it says why. Luke gives us that. If you look in verse 14, who were lovers of money? So here's the Pharisees, uh, again, religious rulers of that day. And he's saying what you're actually exalting is money, something that men or human beings worship. And he's saying, when you do that, you're missing the point. So they actually are sneering, though, at Jesus. They have contempt for his teaching. They really don't like what he's saying. And so it's in that context that he tells them this. 
and tells them this story. And I'm not going to reread it, but we're going to walk through and just unpack what's happening in the story, gain a little context, and then see it in the story of the Bible. So there's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. In this culture, this time, in order to get purple, the color, you had to crush up snail shells that were hard to find. This was an expensive thing to do. And here he is dressed in purple every day. And then actually I was reading this week, the fine linen is, is just really nice underwear. Um, so you knew we were going to talk about underwear today, but uh, so fine linen. So he, and he's living this way every day. And in fact, uh, in one commentary, he said this is actually normal Roman lifestyle. The means he has, he's just living in accordance with them. So they're not necessarily, Luke, and we'll look at this more, not necessarily condemning him for being a rich man. So that's the rich man. And then there is Lazarus. It says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so you've got this beggar, and, and he's, he doesn't even bring himself to the gate of the rich man's house. He's brought there. We learn that he has a name. His name is Lazarus, and he's, he's suffering. He's covered with sores, and he's starving. He's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In this culture, uh, they would have leftovers that they would kind of wipe up with a cloth napkin, and that would, those would linger in that napkin, meat, bread, whatever it was. And they would often throw that to the dogs. And he's not even getting that. In fact, dogs are coming and licking his sores, making him unclean in that culture. So this guy is suffering big time and no one's having mercy on him except an unclean animal. So he's having a hard time. He's dealing with a lot. So there's the contrast of the two. Continuing on, the time came when the beggar died and the angels also carried him to Abraham's side. So we've get, they both die. It says the rich man died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. That word there, Hades, is typically referred to, that's the Greek word for hell, or sometimes in the Old Testament it's called Sheol. It's kind of this place of, of suffering that, that leads to final judgment. When we come to parables like this, we're not coming to them to get our entire doctrine of something like hell, for example. And yet there will be things that we can see that correlate with what other scriptures teach about hell. Jesus is telling a story here. He's not necessarily teaching us doctrine. He's trying to make a point, and so that's what he's doing here. A couple other things. We see that the man, the rich man, looks up and he sees Lazarus by Abraham's side. Meals and table fellowship at that time, that is a seat of honor and a seat of intimacy. So this man who was far off is now brought near, and Lazarus is now calling. But he doesn't, it's interesting, he wants Lazarus to come and, and give him some water, but he doesn't talk to Lazarus. Instead, he says, Father Abraham. Now, Father Abraham was a common phrase used of the, the, promise, the man of promise, Abraham, but he's doing it in this sense by appealing to ethnic heritage. He's saying, I'm Jewish. Father Abraham is Jewish. I'm calling upon him to have pity on me. But it's interesting, he sees Lazarus still as a servant, and he says, I'm not even going to talk to Lazarus. I'll talk to Abraham and he'll tell Lazarus to come do this. But even more so interesting is that he knows Lazarus's name. 
This man that was outside his gate begging and begging, longing for even table scraps, and he ignores and ignores and ignores, he actually knew who he was. He knew what he was asking for. Continuing on, Abraham uh, responds to him. And Abraham says, son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, this is, again, this passage is not an indictment on being rich, necessarily. This is rather an examination. In fact, there's a lot of people in the Bible who are wealthy, who do righteous things. For example, women who are wealthy support Jesus' ministry. Joseph of Arimathea, who's a rich man, gives Jesus his tomb. So right, richness can't just be condemned as evil, nor is there a guarantee that if you're in poverty, you get accepted into heaven. Again, Jesus is trying to tell a story to make a point in contrast. This is a parable. This is not where, again, we get all our doctrines, but rather stories that we seek to understand with our doctrine, with the teaching that we understand from Scripture. So... This is also not where we get our entire understanding of hell. Right here we see a couple of things that are kind of hell related. Great chasm, not being able to cross over. And so I wanted to say a brief word on hell. I think it would be important to not just gloss past this. So a few things about how hell is talked about in the Bible. Again, we gain our understanding of doctrine, uh, and that just means teaching. So in this sense, we're having the doctrine of hell from the whole council of scripture. We don't rule out Old Testament or New Testament but it's something that's interesting is when we get to the New Testament, as the story is starting to progress and move toward climax in Jesus, he's actually going to teach more about the reality of hell than any prophet or apostle in the Bible. Jesus is the one who talks about hell the most. And, and what we see about hell is it is the result of God's justice, namely his goodness, that he has wrath against sin and evil. In the same way that we, when we see evil and wrongdoing, feel anger and frustration, God feels it in a bigger way. And in fact, he is then just to send sinners to hell. We learn even from this passage that our choices and actions have eternal consequences and that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for all those who reject Jesus and die in their sins. Again, we kind of see it here, but we're, we see it way more in other passages of Scripture. So to reject the idea of hell would actually be to reject Jesus' understanding of Scripture. It is a hard teaching, and yet we have to look at it, that he's the one that's actually going to refer to hell as outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is not meant to be used as a scare tactic. The gospel doesn't lead with hell, but it, it does have it as a part of the realities of people that reject Christ. And the, and the Bible always tells us that uh, there is, we die once and then there is judgment. Hell's not unique to Christianity. Other, other religions look at hell. And in fact, we even sometimes in culture, we almost put people in sort of a, a place that they can't escape when we cancel them or we allow for no chance for redemption. So well, this isn't unique, and yet Christianity does have a unique response to this. Uh, and that is that we have a Savior who opens up uh, a way for us to escape hell, that we can call on him and know him and experience eternal life with him. And to that end, Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, says this. If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. 
If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, the cross of Je- uh, ignoring the cross of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. The loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. So again, that's, that's what we're losing if we miss out on Jesus. As we're saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose my own way. In fact, no depiction in the Bible of someone in hell ever shows them as contrite, repentant, desirous of God. So hell actually becomes then a choice. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it this way, the damned are in one sense successful. Rebels against God to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. So this is a separation from God, from his goodness, from beauty, from joy that is one's own choosing as we reject God. One last thing on this, because it still might be offensive to our sensibilities. R.C. Sproul says this, there are two significant reasons for our hesitation regarding, and at times, our revulsion to the doctrine of hell. The first is that we don't understand who God is. We have little to no understanding of the depth and breadth and the height of his perfection and his holiness. That he is so other, so holy, so pure, that he can't allow sin to taint that purity. The second is that we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. We are quick to say, to err is human, to forgive is divine, and we are equally swift to affirm that no one's perfect. The awfulness of sin hasn't really captured our understanding. What repentance we have before God is shallow at best as we sugarcoat the offenses we have committed, not only against our neighbors, but especially and ultimately against God himself. So he's saying we can't downplay God's holiness or our sin. And when we do, we are, the more we do, the more we don't like hell. But when we see how holy God is, how just he is, how pure he is, we see how evil our sin is, how much it just tears apart our own lives and hurts others, much less is an affront to God. We start to understand why he has to be just and he's actually good and right to be just and punish sin. Now, That might not answer all your questions on hell. We didn't cover everything. I would encourage you, one of the LDI classes I didn't highlight, this fall, Brian is gonna be teaching four weeks on heaven and hell. And he's gonna be really digging into this doctrine and how we should think about it in light of who God is. So I would encourage you to investigate that. All right, continuing on in our story. He now shifts, he starts begging Abraham, Father Abraham, that he would send him to his family. He's got these five brothers. He says, go warn them, warn them. And look at Abraham's response in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He's saying there actually is enough in the scriptures in the Old Testament for them to turn back to God. And here's what the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. And again, Abraham repeats, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, which just means the Old Testament, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So he's saying the scripture isn't enough. You gotta show them a sign. 
This ultimately does point to Jesus and his resurrection, which people still will refuse, but there's a different Lazarus and a different resurrection that shows this idea. In John chapter 11, the context is Jesus has just gone after four days and raised his friend Lazarus from the tomb. And it says this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then later in verse 53, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Jesus goes and actually does this resurrection sign that, that the rich man had demanded in Lazarus. And there's two responses. One is, oh my gosh, he must be the Messiah. They believe, but the other response is we gotta kill him. Jesus actually, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, signs his death warrant because this is the first time that they start saying, we gotta kill this guy. And it will ultimately happen. They'd rather kill Jesus then believe in him and worship him. So we've got to ask, how is this not just another story? And the reality is, it is it, the whole story is one of reversal. The exalted man is humbled, the humble man is exalted. A theme we see often in Luke. We actually see a lot of contrast. We've got a rich man dressed in purple fine linen, living luxuriously every day, but guilty of breaking the second commandment. He doesn't love his neighbor as himself. That ultimately is against God. He dies. He doesn't believe in God's word and he shows no hint of repentance. And we see Lazarus laid at the gate of the rich man, covered with sores, longing to eat from the table, licked by dogs and unclean, given a name. In fact, Lazarus means the one whom God helps. He also dies and he goes from being far off to being brought near. That's the that's what Jesus wants us to see. There's going to be reversals. And it all hinges on repentance. One thing that's interesting is, is the only thing they have in common, they both die. But they have two very different postures. And we have to ask ourselves then, what is Jesus trying to tell us? How is this not just another story? What is the deal with the reversal? Jesus, in fact, loves reversals because he's showing us we can, like me with my plumbing projects or my electrical work, be completely missing it and completely misunderstanding God. So we have to ask, what did the rich man get wrong? Here's what he got wrong. It shows by his actions. His actions show his beliefs. Our behavior always shows our beliefs. His actions show that he doesn't understand the compassion of God. Because if he did, he would turn around and show that same compassion. And the other thing he would do if he understood the compassion of God is he would say, have mercy on me. So the rich man gets wrong is he doesn't understand that God is compassionate, that in fact, the point Abraham's making is Moses and the prophets, the whole thing they're doing over and over is saying, your plan A fails, appeal to God for mercy. Because he is a God of compassion. Ken Hughes says this, a surface reading of this parable might indicate that the rich man missed salvation because he was not generous enough with his money. That's how we read it if we're looking at it from a moral lens. 
When you walk away from the sermon saying, I just got to give more money, then God will love me. We're getting it wrong. He says that is not the case. The true reason for his damnation was his disregard for God's word and his rejection of the Lord. He did not believe the scriptures, and he certainly did not think his disregard would land him in hell. To think that someone like him, living in such abundance, can miss heaven? And yet without Christ, such is the case. Remembering the context, this was a call from Jesus to lovers of money. We might not, you might not say, I'm, not, I'm a lover of money, but there are things that we rest on, that we lean on and say, this is what makes me okay. Our passage is showing us to rest on Christ alone, to appeal for God, to God for mercy alone as the one who makes us okay. And what that looks like is repentance. Again, this whole story of the Bible is, the, is to listen to the story, to hear of God's compassion, to believe, to turn from idols, to turn back to God, to see that our plan has failed. We were just out in the Badlands. We went on a, a little vacation, family vacation. And we were out in the Badlands. We took a back road through the National Park. And we, we just were, that whole day, all we wanted to see was American bison. And we did see this eventually, but the first thing we saw, we're driving, we see one bison up on the hill. And we're like, drive to it, get to it, so we can see what it looks like. And we drive up there, we get up to it, and as we're getting up to it, it crosses under the hill and under the horizon. We can't see it anymore. And we're like, oh, we missed it. And then one of us turned to the left, and out the car in a field was at least 500 bison. This doesn't even capture, this picture doesn't even capture how many were there. We're all looking, we're like, where's the bison? And we look, oh, there they are. I say all that to say, when we read the story of the Bible and we miss the compassion of God, it's like we're looking out that window on the wrong side. The whole story of the Bible, the very first thing he says to Moses, the thing he wants the Israelites to know, the thing he appeals through the prophets, the whole Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes, he's wanting us to see that he is compassionate. And if we don't see that, we miss out on repenting and we certainly miss out on showing compassion to others. That's what Abraham is saying. You missed God's compassion. That's missing out. That's the message of the Bible. And if you don't miss, if you don't see that God is compassionate and you don't appeal to him for mercy, no sign will convince you. Even someone rising from the dead. We miss that now God's mercy is available to us in Christ who rose from the dead. In fact, Jesus wraps up the whole Bible teaching right here in this story in Matthew 9 as it relates to compassion. In Matthew 9, verse 10, it says, well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That verse right there, verse 13, Jesus is wrapping up the entire Bible's teaching on God's compassion. That's from Hosea chapter six, verse six. And it says, I desire, what does God want? He wants you to be compassionate, to look like him. He doesn't even want sacrifice. Jesus is taking that one verse and bringing it all into clarity. 
He's saying if you miss out on the compassion of God, then you will be that, like the end of that verse. You will think you're righteous and you'll miss out on Jesus calling you to himself for he has come to call sinners. We would miss out on life in Christ. So let's talk about compassion a little bit here. A definition, one definition means that to, to have compassion, pity, deep empathy. This verb is similar to what is expressed in modern language as a feeling in one's gut or heart of deep empathy for another person. That God's actually wanting us to see that he is a, a God who feels from his inner being for sinners and longs to win them back to himself. But we... So let's, if God desires compassion, then what does it look like? I came up with a classic list of eight things. Christian compassion listens to the voices of the marginalized and the poor. We see that in our passage. He's missing the point. He's not reflecting who God is because he's putting wax in his ears, as it were, about what Lazarus needs. And secondly, Christian compassion meets tangible needs, again from our passage. It isn't just thoughts and prayers. Prayer is important, but also meeting tangible needs. He does not meet Lazarus's needs. Third, Christian compassion is compassion for the undeserving, not just our friends or our tribes. Oftentimes, instead of gut level uh, empathy for those we disagree with politically, or maybe people of different generations than us, people who think differently on the issues, instead of feeling gut-level compassion and seeking to understand them, we feel gut-level anger. We want to maybe write them off, cancel them, cut them out of our lives. But Christian compassion is, compassion is only compassion if it's for someone who doesn't deserve it. In fact, that's the gospel. The gospel is God's compassion on undeserving sinners. And lastly, Christian, or fourth, Christian compassion is done for the other person, not in order to receive a reward. And there's two ways this can happen. One is the religious way. When I say religious, I mean doing things in order to gain a better standing with God, to add to my bank account with God. The gospel says we've been given Christ's bank account. We don't need to add to it. We don't get bonus points for doing good works. We do them in response. But if we're a religious person, we might think, I've got to do good works so that God will love me more. And then, if that's how we think, that's, our reward is our own bank account increasing, so our compassion is done for selfish reasons. But you don't need to be religious to do that for selfish reasons. In fact, if you're not religious, you might demonstrate your virtue for others to see. You might post causes you believe in. You might advocate for causes you believe in. You might do things with a phrase called virtue signaling so that others see and say, man, that's a good person because they believe that thing. That's a good person because they support the cause I support. And now your reward is their approval. So you actually believe that cause not because you're doing it for the person in need, but so that you would be more approved of in others' eyes. And in that way, that's selfish. Christian compassion, on the other hand, though, comes out of a place of receiving mercy and wanting others to have that same mercy for themselves. Not to receive a reward because again, we already have our reward in Christ, but rather just so others would be blessed. And in that way, it's not about us. Continuing on, Christian compassion is done from a place of humility and knowing that we are also sinners. 
So we don't make morality power plays and say, oh, I could never be that way. I could never think the way you think. I could never sin the way you sin because we know that we have and do. I could never drive like that and then I drive like that. Second, Christian compassion drops the posture of condemnation and instead seeks understanding and reconciliation. That instead of gut-level anger, we actually process through our frustration with people and seek to understand where they're coming from, seek to reconcile, seek to share understanding with them. Third, Christian compassion does not mean permission to sin. In our culture, it can be very tempting to say, what true compassion is is just the free pass. Let people do whatever they want. Don't ever challenge, don't ever confront. But Christian compassion does not mean permission to sin. It's actually unloving to not confront somebody with truth. In fact, Jesus is the one who is the most compassionate person who ever lived, and yet we even saw in our passage is willing to speak hard truth to people that are on the wrong path. Lastly, Christian compassion flows out again of our own receiving of mercy. We stood guilty, condemned, sinfully sick, and Jesus saved us, forgave us, and healed us. And so therefore, we want others to get in on this. But if we're being honest, we resemble far more the rich man in the story, quieting our ears to the cries of our brothers and friends, obsessed with ourselves and focusing on our own riches, cold, uncaring, condemning. We ignore the poor and the marginalized. We cancel people. We unfriend them. We write them off. We cut them out of our lives. We look down on others while celebrating ourselves. We stay away from sharing hard truths with people because we love their approval more than we love them. We miss God's compassion when we do that. We don't live that way, but Jesus did. Jesus came and associated with the sick and the sinful and the marginalized. He healed people. He moved toward them. He befriended his enemies and forgave them. He served them. He showed them who God is and what God's heart of compassion looks like. He called out and confronted sin in compassion. And lastly, he did the ultimate act of compassion and that he went to a cross for us. So we can't miss the grandeur of God moving heaven and earth in his compassion to save sinners like us. In fact, Jesus then, if we want to, this gets a little allegorical, but it actually, I think, sees it, we see it play out in Scripture. Jesus, in a sense, becomes the true rich man who doesn't ignore our cries but comes to us. Ben used this passage last week. We use it again. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, by, that, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is the truly compassionate rich man who comes to us so that we could share in his riches. Philippians 2 says he does it by identifying with us. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So Jesus is the truly rich man who actually becomes like Lazarus for us. He identifies with us. He's found to be like us. 
much so that he identifies with us in our sin despite being sinless. Humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. A lot of compassion is empathy. It is identifying in others what you know in yourself. And in that, Jesus becomes the most empathetic. He becomes like us and that he takes on flesh. He becomes human and is punished in our place as a sinner. Isaiah 53 says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Does that sound like Lazarus? Disfigured, despised, unrecognized, longing. Continuing on, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We don't look like Jesus. We don't show God's compassion. We don't listen to the cries of others. We care only for our friends. We cut people out of our lives because they're difficult. We make ourselves the hero and others the villain of our stories. And we are in the wrong for that because when we do that, we miss God's compassion. And what Isaiah 53 is telling us is that Jesus is the true rich man who became like Lazarus for us. He's the one who was forgotten and ignored so that we can be brought in. He's the one who was set outside the gate so we can be drawn near to God. He shows the ultimate act of compassion and his richness and royalty coming down and humbling himself and dying for lowly, spiritually poor, sin-sick people like us. to conclude there looking at the cross story and actually seeing Jesus adorned with, with robes of royalty and then stripped. Mark 15 and, and looking at the cross says this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, a cloak of royalty. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. This is the gospel. The truly rich one, the true king comes in our place and is mocked and forgotten so that uncompassionate, uncaring sinners like us, enemies of God, can actually repent and come back to God. He dies in our place. And until we understand that, we won't actually be compassionate. Until, that's what the rich man missed. Until we understand the mercy of God to us and just how in the wrong we were and how now in the right we are because of our faith in Christ and because of his death, we won't actually be able to turn around and be compassionate. So let's not make the same mistake the rich man made. Let's today appeal to God for his mercy. Let's repent and believe in Jesus. And when we do, we receive, we don't get table scraps. We get all of his righteousness attributed to us, credited to our account. We get a crown of glory. He doesn't wear a crown of thorns anymore. He has a crown of glory. And we get that same crown when we put our faith in him.